And greetings to all our brethren around the world. We wish you an inspiring Sabbath and the power to grow spiritually in 2006. Today is December 31st, 2005, and even though the world follows a secular pattern, it's a pattern founded on superstition and paganism. We know God's calendar begins in the spring, not in the dead of winter. But we do, however, reflect on the activities of 2005, particularly when we submit our tax return. 2005 was a very eventful year for the church and for the nation's of planet Earth, as we saw in the telecast just a few minutes ago. The Wall Street Journal gave this summary for 2005, from zero to $200 billion, and the $200 billion refers to an estimated cost for Katrina and the hurricanes. The year 2005, disaster still hit home, December 28, 2005, the Wall Street Journal, quote, a world stunned by the massive tsunami last year that displaced and killed hundreds of thousands in South Asia reeled again in 2005 from the power of nature. Hurricanes Katrina and Rita slammed the U.S. Gulf Coast in August, claiming nearly 1,300 lives, and a devastating earthquake shook Pakistan in October, leaving nearly 90,000 dead and more than 3 million homeless. Other memorable, less tragic numbers came from the end of lengthy rains in the Vatican, Chicago, and France, the rising values of commodities, the amount of a controversial loan, and more. So it was an eventful year. It was an eventful year for the church as well. Christ opened up great doors for media. We went on international television, Inspiration Network International, and also on Inspiration Network in the United States. Channel 9 in Australia now broadcasts tomorrow's world nationwide across the continent of Australia. But state, Satan will stop at nothing to stop God's work. And so last March, he attacked our brethren in Brookfield, Wisconsin. Other faithful servants and saints of God died in the faith in 2005. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And just look at how God views the death of his servants. Hebrews, the 11th chapter. God mentions those by name who were faithful, and he emphasizes that we need to be faithful. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, Hebrews 11, verse 6, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I hope that's your commitment for 2006. But here in verse 13, he gives a summary of those who died. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. I hope that applies to all of us, that we're persuaded of God's promises of the kingdom and of inheriting the universe, inheriting eternal life, inheriting the kingdom. They were persuaded of those promises and embraced them. They thought about them. They accepted them. They committed themselves to those promises and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. These all died in faith. And our brethren throughout the United States and other places around the world that died this year, they died in the faith and they died in faith. 
not having received their promises. And what greater honor could be said about someone in the faith? May that be said of any of us who die in 2006 or go to sleep in the Lord. And, of course, even beyond 2006. They died in the faith. So we need to be in 2006 faithful. And in fact, our deceased brethren are waiting for us. Verse 39, again, after listing more faithful saints, verse 39, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. That is the ultimate promise. They received all other kinds of promises, but the promise of eternal life and immortality. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They are waiting for us in the grave. So what are we going to do in 19 or 2006 or beyond 1900s? Will you be faithful? And how will you live your life in 2006? Well, we must all commit ourselves to grow spiritually in 2006. We must become more like Jesus Christ in 2006. And we must actively trust in God's power in order to fulfill those goals. The title of the sermon today is God's Power. We must actively trust in God's power in 2006. Let's turn to Matthew, the 16th chapter. Let's understand that God is so powerful that not even death can prevail against his church. You know this scripture. Let's review it in Matthew, the 16th chapter, starting with verse 18. And Jesus said, I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So Christ is the head of the body. He will build his church. And the gates of Hades, the grave, shall not prevail against it. And so our brethren who died this past year, are sleeping in the grave, but the church, the body of Christ, continues. It goes on. Not even the gates of the grave can prevent God's church from fulfilling its mission. Why? Because God is in control. He rules supreme. Remember one time Mr. Herbert Armstrong asked the question, what is the greatest fact? Well, we can perhaps come up with many different answers to that question. But his answer was, God rules supreme. Because God is the greatest reality, and he is by nature and by virtue of who and what he is, he rules supreme. God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Let's turn to Revelation, the 19th chapter. Let's understand in 2006, we need to trust in God's power. Revelation, the 19th chapter. God is also omnipotent, mean omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Revelation 19 and verse 7. And here this is leading up to the coming of Christ. Verse 5 of Revelation 19. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. So again, the idea of godly reverence. Uh, is not vanished by the New Testament. 
God expects that those right up until the coming of Christ will have a godly reverence. They will fear him. And we love him, of course, as well. They're not mutually exclusive. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Yes, he is all-powerful, omnipotent. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. We are in the process, we are in the process of preparing. His wife has made herself ready. This is a, a beautiful part of the Hallelujah chorus, or at least the uh, Handel's Messiah, rather. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. We saw that at the uh, Uptown Charlotte here recently. Just a very inspiring concert and presentation of Handel's Messiah. We are making ourselves ready, but how are we doing that? Not through our own power, but it's through the power of Christ. Well, let's briefly examine this afternoon different types of power and then examine the kind of power that God wants you to have. Turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter, Matthew 24. As we saw briefly in the telecast, that there are all kinds of forces active in the world, evil forces, wicked forces. There are military forces. And we know Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22 by heart, but there then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So this is a time coming that will be great turmoil, great distress. But, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. We came to understand that when the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 in August of 1945. There's great power in the atomic bomb. That was in August 6th, was the first atomic bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. That atomic bomb contained the equivalent of 20,000 tons of TNT. You just think of a few pounds of TNT, but think of a ton of TNT. Multiply that 20,000 times, and you have a little idea of the power of that first atomic bomb. And that was more than 2,000 times more powerful than the largest bomb used to date up to that particular time. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, gives us perspectives on the nuclear weaponry development around the world. And this is uh, an article from the November-December Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, called Lessons Lost by Joseph uh, Siracione. During the last 60 years, he writes, we've missed several opportunities to contain the nuclear threat. It's not too late to learn from our mistakes. I hope it's not too late to learn from our mistakes. Uh, those who are not in control would like us to. The United States first tested its H-bomb in November 1952, with a yield of 10.4 megatons. Predictably, the Soviets tested their first fusion device a year later on August 12, 1953. So we had the atomic bomb in August of 1945, and then the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, in 1953. The American Bravo test of March 1, 1954, 
exploded the first deliverable H-bomb with a yield of 15 megatons. Now, let's understand the difference between these powers, remembering that the bomb that obliterated Hiroshima was but one-hundredth megaton, 0.01 megaton, where an H-bomb has 15 megatons of power. The bulletin writes this, three decades later, that is after 1955, the bulletin wrote some years ago, we now find ourselves locked in an arms race with the Soviets, which has gone on for nearly 40 years, and has reached the point where there are more than 50,000 nuclear weapons, representing a total yield of 13,000 megatons deployed by the United States and the Soviet Union. Remembering that the bomb that obliterated Hiroshima was but one one-hundredth megaton, we begin to appreciate the, the enormity of overkill pop potential in the hands of superpowers. So let's understand the power that is available in the United States and Russia and presumably now being circulated underground to rogue nations and rogue forces. Turn to Revelation, the ninth chapter, Revelation 9. Will nuclear weapons destroy nations in the future? Will these weapons of mass destruction kill any significant numbers of people? Revelation, the ninth chapter, and verse 13. Revelation 9 and verse 13. This is the sixth trumpet of the seven trumpets during the day of the Lord. One woe is past. Behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, verse 13. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. Now, that's hard for us to imagine. We have close to 200 or a quarter of a million killed by the tsunami, and that's not even one million. You think about a third of 6.3 billion at the present time. That's 2.1 billion people that would be destroyed. Now, how are they going to be destroyed? Verse 16, the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. Now, that seems to at least elicit images of nuclear fire, nuclear power. And the heads of the horses were as heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. It would seem that these may be even be tactical nuclear weapons, which, of course, the United States has and other nations may have as well. But let's understand the power that is in the military weaponry, the weapons of mass destruction that are already extant and distributed, ready to even be used. One hydrogen bomb has 1,500 times the power of the first atomic bomb. And human beings have misused the power that God has given them. Human nature desires pride, power, possession, and pleasure. And, of course, that carnal <clears throat> attitude is 
hostile towards God, Romans 8, 7. And it's that carnal attitude that leads to arrogance and to war and to the rejection of the greatest reality that God rules supreme. Now, God has given us power. He's given human beings dominion over the earth. You can read about that in Genesis 1 when God said, Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion, that is, governing force and power, authority, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God said in Genesis 1, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Dominion is defined as, or a thesaurus um, equivalent, is controlling power or influence over others, or it can be defined as supreme authority, absolute ownership. So while the world is misusing its power, are you faithful over the powers you have? Do you control the power of your words? Do you control the power of your thoughts? Do you control the power of physical appetite? I have to work on that. Are we faithful in our responsibilities? Let's turn to Luke, the 16th chapter, Luke 16. So God has given us human beings, dominion, authority, power, and we see that in military power that is has been misused and will ultimately be a part of the cataclysm approaching the days of Armageddon. Luke, the 16th chapter. But God wants us as individuals to control ourselves, to use the powers that we have to His honor and to His glory. Luke 16 and verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Human beings want to get. They want to get power. They want more possessions, more money. But God says, look, you need to be faithful over the little things you have. What possessions do you have? You teach your children to be faithful and organized over their toys, perhaps. And we have to be faithful over all our responsibilities. We had a sermon some time ago on Christian responsibilities. What are your responsibilities? We all have responsibility as being a child of God. We all have responsibilities, those who are baptized, as being bond slaves of Jesus Christ. So what are your responsibilities? You may have a responsibility as a mother, or as a father, or as a son, a daughter, or as an employer, or as an employee. Are you faithfully fulfilling those responsibilities. He that is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. You also have the power of personality. I wrote an article that appeared in the LCN some uh, couple years ago entitled The Power of Example. Your example influences others. As I said uh, then in the sermon, I think, at the time, in the communications field, there's an axiom that says, you cannot not communicate. In other words, if you try to just have a stone face and say, I'm not communicating, you are communicating. You're communicating something. You're trying to hide something. You cannot not communicate. We are examples. You radiate. Of course, it's our purpose to radiate. 
the fruits of God's spirit, of love, joy, and peace, to be the light of the world. So how are you using the power of personality? We all have powers, and we need to be faithful over that which is least, so God will trust us to be faithful also in much. As we looked at the power of the military, again, one hydrogen bomb has 1,500 times the power of the first atomic bomb. Human beings have misused the power that God has given them. The military power of the sixth trumpet plague, as we saw, will kill one-third of mankind. The bulletin of the atomic scientists, uh, the particular group, sets what is called the doomsday clock. And it sets that clock based on atomic power and the potential of cosmicide and death of planet Earth. The doomsday clock was last moved on February 27, 2002, and currently it stands at seven minutes to midnight, and that had been moved uh, previously from uh, the previous setting of 12 minutes before midnight, moved up to seven minutes before midnight because of the lack of control and the proliferation of nuclear weaponry. There are other areas of power in the world as well. There's the power of information and technical power. The world's most powerful computer has doubled in size. It's called Blue Gene, and it doubles its processing power to 32,002 processor nodes. That's from the IDG News Service, March 10, 2005. It's made up of these 32,002 processor nodes, giving it about 64,000 processors in total. And it has been rated now as the fastest computer on the planet in the top 500 list of the world's fastest supercomputers. IBM's prototype was benchmarked at 70.72 trillion calculations per second. I think I reported a couple years ago, and I know when I re had a tour of Cray Computer uh, Company and uh, their research development in St. Paul, Minnesota, at the time they were working on uh, mega gigaflops, which is uh, one, I think they were headed for one point or 16 gigaflops they could guarantee, which means that they had 16 billion calculations per second. And I saw their computer, it was a, a domed computer with parallel um, microprocessors in an inert uh, circulating liquid so that it wouldn't heat up. And that was something, 16 gigabytes, a gigaflop, excuse me. And now they were thinking, oh, someday we'll get to a teraflop, you know, one trillion calculations a second. And now what are they up to? 70.72 teraflops. Does that make sense to you? That's 70.72 trillion calculations per second. Well, that is the supercomputer the new system is expected to be capable of approximately twice that performance, making it nearly three times as powerful as the next system on the list, NASA's uh, 10,240 processor called Columbia. So there's power in information and in uh, technology. There's also governmental pro uh, power. For decades, the Church of God, beginning with Mr. Herbert Armstrong had been warning our Western nations that a new superpower was going to arise in Europe. And you can read about that in our booklet, The Beast of Revelation, Myth, Metaphor, or Coming Reality. 
Uh, Mr. O'Gwen quoted from uh, Mr. Armstrong's booklet or from a Plain Truth magazine in which when it appeared impossible that with the domination of Eastern Europe by the communists that Eastern Europe would someday be a part of the re resurrected or revived Roman Empire. Revelation, the 17th chapter, let's turn there as we look at governmental power briefly. Revelation, the 17th chapter. <clears throat> there is a great power, and God uses the term beast to describe great empires and great powers. Revelation 17 and verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power. Yes, this is governmental power as and military power, as kings one hour with the beast. We've been saying for years that there is going to be a revived Roman Empire. Dr. Doug Grinnell uh, gave some of us this article. It's from the Daily Mail, December 10th, 2005. The Federal Monster. So you thought the EU Constitution was dead? Dream on. In fact, the past few months have seen a dramatic diminishing of British sovereignty as Brussels, abetted by our ministers, grabs even more power. So British sovereignty is diminishing as Brussels begins to grab more of that power. How is it doing that? Everything related to aviation in the UK, for example, from deciding which airlines are permitted to use our airports to the certifying of aircraft as fit to fly used to be the responsibility of Britain's Civil Aviation Authority, respected all over the world. But today, we no longer have any of those powers because they have been handed over to the European Aviation Safety Agency based in Cologne. So now the British no longer have sovereignty or control over their own airplane safety. It is administered through Cologne under a policy known as the single European sky. All issues relating to railway safety are about to be handed over to the EU's rail, uh, railway agency based in France. So what had been authority within the British government is now being transferred into the EU. Another couple of uh, examples, the EU's ports and ships are about to come under the regulatory control of the European Maritime Agency based in Portugal. Our chemicals industry, Europe's largest, will shortly be subjected to a draconian regulatory regime run by the European Chemicals Agency based in Finland. Even the enforcement of rules in British fishing waters is to be run by the European Fisher, Fisheries Agency in Vigo, a Spanish f a port famously known as the world capital of illegal fishing. So what we see is the sovereignty going to this monster, as the Daily Mail calls it, and that there is a grab of power, taking power that belonged to the British government into the EU. The British Mail comments, quote, instead of sweeping away all the existing national institutions in each country, these have all been left standing while being hollowed out from within. Our familiar landscape of monarchy, parliament, civil service, and courts is still in place as if nothing had changed, but it's hollowed out from 
inside. Today, in many respects, the true capital of our country is no longer London, it is Brussels. We are ruled far more than most people yet realize by a system of government which is not elected and which, therefore, we cannot hold to account or dismiss. Their significance and power is being gradually sucked out, that is, the British uh, power, to be handed over to this mysterious new system of government, which not even most of our elected politicians begin to understand. So governmental power is being taken from England or from Britain into the EU. And, of course, the total resurrection, what we've just read here in Revelation 17, verse 12, has not yet happened. But that will happen in the future. From what does governmental power and authority derive? Let's take a look at a biblical example and one major lesson that King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. He had to learn the lesson the hard way. Let's turn back to Daniel, the fourth chapter. You'll see this in the future in a telecast called God's Power in History, scheduled to air next April. Daniel, the fourth chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar experienced a troubling dream, and he called on the prophet Daniel to interpret it. And Daniel told the king that the king had some lessons to learn. And unless Nebuchadnezzar would repent of his sins, the king would be deposed and he would live like an animal for seven years. Daniel 4 and verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. I hope every one of us knows that lesson. We know that God rules, that he rules supreme, that he has power. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. And so Daniel told him in verse 27, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto you, and break off your sins by righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of your tranquility. Then he continues the prophecy. And what happened to him, of course, the king in his arrogance. In verse 30, he says, is, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? That was arrogance. He didn't give credit and glory to God. He was bragging on his own power. And what happened? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, your kingdom is departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will, or to whomever he chooses. Verse uh, 36, later on, Nebuchadnezzar regained his reason after those seven years. We're living like an animal. 
And he said, at the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my Lord sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Well, he learned the hard way. And I think some of us have had to learn the hard way. Sometimes we've got the big head, and God has humbled us. He that exalts himself shall be abased, we read in the Scriptures. So that was an, an important lesson. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. And that's a lesson that every king, president, statesman, ruler should understand and know down to the very bottom of the heart and the, the mind. So we see that God gives power to men to rule. And sometimes he puts over it the basest of men, as it says in verse 17. You can look back there. And uh, again, the same lesson is reinforced by uh, this one dream. Daniel is interpreting it. And he says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets over it the basest or the lowliest of men. So God will even sometimes test human beings by putting over it someone who is not so moral or someone who is not so wise, and they have to learn the lessons. There was a uh, famous saying that uh, commented on absolute power and corruption in government, and the world today features corrupt governments and leaders. In 1887, Lord Acton wrote this well-known saying, quote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men, he goes on to write, are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you super-add the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. End of quote. That's why God's church has taught for many years now servant leadership. And that lesson, of course, is brought to us, I won't turn there, Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, when Jesus said, Whosoever shall be great among you or desires to be first among you, let him be your slave or your servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But what is our relationship towards government? Let's turn to Romans, the 13th chapter. We've... Uh, commented at length on the subject in the past, but at least to at least touch on God's perspective for us. Let every soul be subject under the higher powers, Romans 13. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordered or ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. Romans 13:4. For he is the minister of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain, but he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. I've told you the, uh, before about uh, 
mid-course correction. I was driving from, I guess it was Big Sandy to Fort Worth, and um, I was halfway there, and uh, I was going a little fast, and a policeman pulled me over to the side and said, well, you know, you're going 78 miles an hour in a 55-mile-hour zone, zone, something like that. And uh, so he said, slow down. So I did. And I was on my way to Fort Worth, and I was giving a sermon on correction. So I got a mid-course correction on the way to giving the sermon on correction. But they are ministers for good, and it was for my good to slow down. And uh, he also gives us another perspective towards government. You know that, First Timothy, the second chapter, First Timothy. Perhaps we don't do this as much as we should. I exhort, therefore, First Timothy 2, First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So have you been praying for the mayor of Charlotte, for the governor of North Carolina, for President Bush, for Vice President Cheney, for Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice? You know, these are individuals that God says that we should be praying for, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Charlotte has been afflicted with a pretty high crime rate and a murder rate. And we need to be praying for those who are in authority that we can lead a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's one of our responsibilities. But God has given governmental power to nations. He sets up kings and he takes them down. And sometimes he places the basest or the lowliest in men in positions of power. But just remember that God is in power, He is in charge, and He controls the destinies of nations. Perhaps it's been some time since you read Mr. Meredith's booklet on how God intervenes in world affairs. But I'd just like to quote uh, one sentence here when he talks about uh, Dunkirk, and I may comment on that uh, later. He says, Yes, God controls the destinies of nations and individuals. So I hope you get to read this booklet on how God intervenes in world affairs. We've discussed the power in military, power in information, power in government. Let's just briefly talk about power, the power of nature. Of course, if you've read Mr. Meredith's booklet on who controls the weather, you understand how God does use power for correction and punishment. Let's turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. There have been many instances in history where weather changed the whole course of a battle or of a war. Psalm 18, here in verse 13. The eternal, also this is David's thanks to God, Verse 13, Psalm 18, The Eternal also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice hailstones and coals of fire. Yes, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at your rebuke, O Eternal, at the blast of the breast of your, breath of your nostrils. He sent from above and took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. So God sometimes uses the elements of weather to intervene in wars and in circumstances 
and situations. The tsunami, by the way, was an example of the nature or the power of nature. And from the Times of India, January 7, 2005, the headline was, Tsunami More Powerful Than Hiroshima Bomb. Ahmedabad, uh, Ahmedabad, after December 26th, everyone knows that the great giant tsunami wave was one of the most powerful releases of energy by Mother Nature ever. But just how much energy did it have to flatten beaches and villages across the continent? The leading Indian seismologist, Dr. J.G. Negi, has calculated that the tsunami itself was 350 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. He said the energy released by the tsunami was the tune of five megaton, while the bomb that destroyed the Japanese city during World War II was of a 15 kiloton only. What is more important, said Dr. Nagy, is that the earthquake, he was just talking about the tsunami power, the earthquake of the Sumatra, of Sumatra, which caused the tsunami, itself had the power of 32,000 hydrogen bombs, end of quote. And, of course, as we saw in the telecast and realized in Luke 21, uh, Jesus prophesied that there would be great earthquakes in various places. You saw this morning's paper, you see uh, Mount St. Helens is still smoking and is kind of puzzling uh, the uh, seismologists and uh, others in the northwestern part of the United States. And while Christ predicted great earthquakes, as you read through the book of Revelation, you'll find the word earthquake used seven times. And so you will be seeing upheavals in nature as time goes on. Now we've, let's take a look at God's power in history. Has God intervened in nations? We already saw how he inter intervened uh, individually with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's turn to uh, 2 Kings, the 19th chapter. 2 Kings 19. Now, what would you do if you were the leader of a nation and you had an army coming to Jerusalem to surround you with 185,000 troops? And uh, you're being told you better surrender because you have no hope of surviving this onslaught and the siege. That was King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19. And it was the king of Assyria... Rabshakeh, who was telling them to surrender through his emissaries. And uh, Hezekiah received a letter from uh, the king. It's in verse 14 of 2 Kings 19. And Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Eternal. And Hezekiah prayed before the Eternal and said, O Eternal God of Israel, which dwell between the cherubims, you are the God, even you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, and you have made heaven and earth. You know, when you're beset with trials and problems, how do you approach God's throne? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You understand the power and the glory and the nature of God, the reality of God, who and what He is. So when you begin your prayers you understand that you're going to a powerful aid and a powerful help. And you conclude your prayer from the model prayer. How does it end? For yours is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. Amen. So when you're in trouble, you go to the power that is going to help you, and you focus on God's nature. And so Hezekiah focused on God's throne, that he was the one who made the, the kingdoms. Lord, bow down your ear and hear, verse 16. Open eternally your eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. And he's admitting to God that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all, the, all these other lands. And he says in verse 19, Now therefore, O eternal our God, I beseech you, save you us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord eternal, the eternal God, even you only. So again, he asked God to save him. I don't know if you, that's another part of the subject, which I sermon I may not get to. I may have to give a second part to the sermon later on. Because I'm only in, into the introduction. No, I'm <laughs> a little beyond that. But nonetheless, uh, have you at any time in your life asked God to save you? We sing the hymn in our hymn book, Save me, O God, by thy great name, you know, and judge me by your strength, or deliver me by your strength. So I hope that when you read Psalm 6, when David says, Save me, O God, now, you want God to save others as well, but he is your Savior. And so King Hezekiah asked God to save them, that is, the nation. And so what happened? Then God intervened miraculously uh, towards them, uh, 19 verses 34 and 37. Starting with verse 34, God says, I will defend the city to save it my own, for my own name's sake. And for my servant David's sake, for my own sake. So he sent Isaiah, the prophet, to tell King Hezekiah that God was going to answer his prayer. What happened? Verse 35, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Eternal went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And then the King James, it says, And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So they didn't arise when they were all dead corpses. But those who were alive saw all the dead corpses. 185,000 died. Now, whether this, uh, you know, did that really happen in that way? Well, Herodotus does not mention it how they, well, he has a different perspective on a decimation that came upon the Assyrians. And this is from Herodotus, the Histories, Book 2, Section 141. And he's describing a decimation that happened to the Assyrians. He, of course, doesn't connect it to God. But then he says, Then after they came, there swarmed by night upon the enemies mice of the fields, and ate up their quivers and their bows, and moreover the handles of their shields, so that on the next day they fled. And being without defense of arms, great numbers fell. So that's one section out of Herodotus that was just describing a decimation that actually did happen to the Assyrians. But God says, He sent this angel and smote 185,000. Verse 36, kind of an understatement here. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. And then he was uh, killed. His sons killed him with a sword. And uh, his son, Ezrahadon, reigned in his stead. Verse 37. So God worked very powerful. And God sent an angel to kill 185,000. 
God has intervened time and time again in history. And so <clears throat> Mr. Meredith uh, refers to that in a booklet on how God intervenes in world affairs. In Dunkirk, as many of you know, the miracle that took place there. Some of you are not aware of World War II history, but Germany invaded, of course, Poland, and then uh, September 1st, 1939, and then later attacked Europe. In May of 1940, the Nazi milita military blitzkrieg overran Western Europe, including Belgium, Luxembourg, Holland, uh, and France. And then Hitler also threatened Great Britain. Prime Minister Winston Churchill warned the world that if Hitler succeeded in his military conquest, a new dark age would begin. And uh, if any of you have heard that historic address, I have a recording of it somewhere. I won't read all of it, but I'll read a part of it. And so he addressed the House of Commons June 18, 1940. Quote, what General Wagon called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. It was a call to courage and a call to defense. And some of you may be feeling down. You may be feeling scared. You may be feeling depressed as you look to 2006. But God's church is calling you to courage. He's calling you to God is calling you to be brave and to be bold in the faith and to go forward to fulfill your responsibilities and to fulfill the commission that the work is given the church and all of us. During that blitzkrieg in May 1940, 335,000 Allied troops were trapped in, near Dunkirk in France. They had no means of escape. King George VI of England requested a national day of prayer. And that was held May 26th. The BEF, or the British Expeditionary Force, the British Expeditionary Force was delivered in what became known as the Miracle of the Calm Seas, or the Miracle of Dunkirk. Uh, Mr. Meredith writes about that in the booklet, How God Intervenes in World Affairs. Adolf Hitler blundered. Dr. Lynn Torrance, who uh, died several years ago, wrote an article in the July 1961 Plain Truth magazine titled Hitler's Seven Fatal Blunders. An excellent article. I, uh, if you want to look at it after services, you're welcome to uh, take a look at it. Hitler blundered, blundered by commanding his panzer tank divisions to stop when they were going to surround the Allied troops 
Why did he do that? He wanted the glory to go to the Luftwaffe, the Air Force. And so that blunder let the Allied forces get to Dunkirk, and there were two incidences of divine intervention. A storm prevented the German Air Force from its mission, and the British Channel, which was normally very tempestuous, experienced calm waters, and every boat, fishing vessel, and ship were pressed into service and a third of a million troops were rescued from certain defeat. And that was after King George asked for a National Day of Prayer. The British celebrated a National Day of Thanksgiving on June 9th. In an article by C.B. Mortluck in the Daily Telegraph, June 8th, 1940, reported the historic events. Quote, officers of high rank do not hesitate to put down the deliverance of the BEF to the fact of the nation being at prayer on Sunday, May 26th. The consciousness of miraculous deliverance pervades the camps in which the troops are now housed in England. One thing can be certain about tomorrow's thanksgiving in our churches. From none will the thanks ascend with greater sincerity or deeper fervor than from the officers and men who have seen the hand of God, powerful to save, delivering them from the hand of a mighty foe, who, humanly speaking, had them utterly at his mercy. So God intervened miraculously. And that's uh, written up here in this uh, booklet I have called uh, We Have a Guardian. And this uh, also has a story, and some of you may believe it or may not, but at least it's documented. And this was a story of God's intervention in World War I. Some of you heard me read this story years ago called The White Cavalry. It's a little lengthy, but I think you'll find the story instructive. This is on page 6 and page 7 of We Have a Guardian. The White Cavalry. In the spring of 1918, the Germans broke through the Allied line. Heavy casualties were sustained, reserves were practically exhausted, and the Americans were not quite ready. Describing how the German advance was checked, an article in the Journal of the Brigade of Guards, winter 1942, states, and this is a quote of the story of the White Cavalry, At the focal point of the enemy's advance, Bethune, the Germans concentrated high explosive and machine gun fire, preparatory to bayonet attack in mass formation. Suddenly, the enemy shell fire lifted and concentrated on a slight rise beyond the town. The ground here was absolutely bare, yet enemy machine guns and shells raked it from end to end with a hail of lead. As suddenly as it started, the enemy's fire ceased. And in the complete silence there rose a lark's trilling song of thankfulness. The dense line of German troops, which had started to move forward to victory in mass formation, halted dead. And as the British watched, they saw it break. The Germans threw down everything they had and fled in frantic panic. And here is the statement of a senior German officer who was taken prisoner immediately afterwards. The order had been given to advance in mass formation, and our troops were marching behind, behind us, singing their way to victory, when Fritz, my lieutenant here, said, Herr Capitan, just look at that open ground beyond Bethune. There is a brigade of cavalry coming up through the smoke, drifting across it. They must be mad, these English, to advance against such a force as ours in the open. 
I suppose they must be cavalry of one of those, one of their colonial forces, for see, they are all in white uniform and are mounted on white horses. Strange, I said, I have never heard of the English having any white uniform cavalry, whether colonial or not. They have all been fighting on foot for several years past, and anyway, they are in khaki, not white. Well, they are plain enough, he replied. See, our guns have got their range now, and they will be blown to pieces in no time. We saw the shells bursting among the horses and their riders, all of whom came forward at a quiet walk-trot in parade-ground formation, each man and horse in his exact place. Shortly afterwards, our machine guns opened a heavy fire, raking the advancing cavalry with a hail of lead. But on they came, and not a single man or horse fell. Suddenly they advanced. Steadily they advanced, clear in the shining sunlight. And a few paces in front of them rose their leader, a fine figure of a man whose hair, like spun gold, shone in an aura, shone in an aura around his head. By his side was a great sword, but his hands lay quietly holding the reins as his huge white charger bore him proudly forward. In spite of heavy shell and concentrated machine gun fire, the white cavalry advanced, remorseless as fate, like the incoming tide surging over a sandy beach. Then a great fear fell on me, and I turned to flee. Yes, I, an officer of the Prussian Guard, fled, panic-stricken. And around me were hundreds of terrified men, whimpering like children, throwing away their arms and accoutrements in order not to have their movements impeded, all running. Their one desire was to get away from that advancing white cavalry, above all from their awe-inspiring leader, whose hair shone like a golden aureole. That is all I have to tell you. We are beaten. The German army is broken. There may be fighting, but we have lost the war. We are beaten by the white cavalry. I cannot understand. I cannot understand. And this is taken from the account of the staff captain, 1st Corps Intelligence, 1st British Army Headquarters, 1916 to 1918, who was present and himself took the above statement from the German officer. During the days that followed, many German prisoners were examined, and their accounts tallied in substance with the one given here. Did it happen? Again, God intervenes powerfully in the lives of nations and lives of individuals. The white cavalry was an example, perhaps, of God's power and intervention. But God wants us to have power as well, and he gives us his spiritual power. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. You know this well. But yet, as we go forward into 2006... We need courage, we need faith, we need boldness, and we need the power of God. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, or as I brought out in the Sermon on Discipline, or of discipline. God wants us to be filled with the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 5, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So God's Spirit is something every one of us needs. It is the power of God, and it comes through His Spirit. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5. Again, 
Human beings can have natural affection for family. And, of course, even Paul predicted that, that people would be without natural affection in perilous times in the end time. We need natural affection, but we need even more than that. We need the gift of God's divine love, which can only come through His Holy Spirit. And that's a gift. And this is a wonderful promise here in verse 5 of Romans 5. And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given us. So God has given to us the spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. God's spirit is the spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. It is also the spirit of begettal. Let's turn back to James, the first chapter, James 1. So let's understand, brethren, that you have power that perhaps you're not using, as Paul said in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 1, stir up or fan to flame the gift that's in you. Back to uh, James, the first chapter. Here we find that God has, through His Spirit, begotten us as His children. And this is in the King James Version, uh, verse 17, James 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. No, God's created all things. So anything that you have that is good, enjoyable, came from God. He created the earth. So anything that is metal came from Him. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Now, in the New King James, it says, brought us forth, which really waters down the deeper meaning of what God has done. He's begotten us, and we're to grow in that begettal stage until we're born at the resurrection, when Christ comes back. But notice, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures or His creation. So God has begotten us as His children, and that's through the power of God's Spirit. We are His begotten children, soon to be born into His family at the resurrection. So it is the Spirit of power. It's the Spirit of God's begetting us as, as His children. It's also the Spirit of creation. Realize that the power that you have in you, the Spirit that you have in you, is God's Holy Spirit, and it's through the Spirit of God that He created everything, created the worlds, and He recreated the earth. You can go back briefly while you don't, you can turn to Psalm uh, 104 as I'm reading Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Or as the New King James Version has it, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the recreation. God created originally the heavens and the earth, and the earth became void after Satan's destruction. But turn to Psalm 104 and verse 30. It shows you again the power of God and His creation. 104.30, Psalm 104.30, You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. The glory of the eternal shall endure forever. 
the eternal shall rejoice in his works. Turn to Romans, the first chapter, Romans 1. Again, brethren, we need to realize that God has given us great power. We need to trust in God's power as we commit our lives to the future, as we face trying times ahead, and realize, as Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not prevail against God's church. Romans, the first chapter, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Verse 20, Romans 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And of course, they became vain in their imaginations. There are those who say that God is dead. I think I've mentioned to you before, 1966, I believe it was Time Magazine, or Time Magazine had a black cover on the front of it, and, and uh, the big letters and words, Is God Dead? Question mark. And that was after, of course, the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. And it was being taught and emphasized at Duke University, sad to say, at the time. And also later on, of course, was a little cartoon in the op-ed page of one of the newspapers, and it was uh, reflecting the philosophy of the time. And it showed Nietzsche kind of shaking his fist toward the clouds and saying, God is dead. And then the next frame shows the cemetery with the tomb, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, and then a voice from heaven saying, Nietzsche is dead and God is alive. So, human beings just do not grasp the reality of God. God has all power. He sustains the universe. We'll talk more about uh, the power of God in uh, an upcoming sermon. But I think today we've at least had an introduction in showing that God does intervene in the world, world affairs, that he has power over kings. He can put them in, in office. He can take them down. He can put the lowliest, basest of individuals over them. But as we face 2006, we will face problems and trials. But we need to understand that we have someone to help us through those times and those trials. We have a great God in heaven and a great Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and who says he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And those are promises I hope that you will claim. Let's turn to Revelation, the fifth chapter. Revelation 5, Handel's Messiah has in it the Hallelujah Chorus, which is just very, very inspiring. But it concludes with a section called Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And it just, to me, is one of the most inspiring and powerful oratorios that I've, I've ever heard, and probably my favorite. And it's based on this section here, Revelation 5, and uh, verse 11. And behold, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. Here are the hosts of heaven. Verse 12, Revelation 5. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power 
and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. God has all power in the universe, and he wants you to have his power. He will help you. He will protect you. He will correct you. He will guide you throughout 2006. So, brethren, in 2006, trust God's power to work through you and with you. And he will give you power to overcome. He will give you power to grow in spiritual maturity. He will give you power to be more like Christ. He will give you power to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So, brethren, trust God's power. And remember Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.